Just past 7 o'clock. And what do you know on a Monday night? It's time for Iron Sports. 95.9 True Oldies Channel. I'm Mike Balsamo. No time to delay because there is so much to get to, Ira. And I don't want to call him my favorite guest because I don't want to discredit anybody else. But I love having Andrew Catalan on. Tell us a little bit about Andrew and everything we're going to talk about with him because there's nobody with better insight on the NFL than Andrew Catalan. Well, he's one of the top four CBS crews that does all the games. It does play-by-play. You and I are biased. We think he's the best play-by-play guy. and should be doing the number one game all the time. But he's great, and the insight he gives uh, is amazing. I don't hear him on any other show. So, really, he talks to the coaches, talks to the players every week. He just did the Patriots-Texans game. Next week, he's doing the Broncos-Raiders game. So, so excited to have him on our show. And, and, you know, it's interesting. We didn't know this up until, um, you know, speaking to him earlier – that he does, you know, handles a lot of the Buffalo Bills stuff, much more so than anybody else. What better team to want to know all about? Because Buffalo's kind of secluded a little bit from from the rest of America. But they don't get a lot of the press, Ira, but they could very well be the best team in football and the Super Bowl champion when it's all said and done. Clearly, after last night's performance in Kansas City, where they totally destroyed the Chiefs, uh, one would have to think that the Bills are the favorite right now. So, Ira, uh, you didn't go to any football for the first time since football kicked off, but there was a good reason. You took in a historic event uh, last week. Well, I didn't go to football, and I stayed. I want to tell you something. Saturday for college football might have been one of the best days ever. I, I honestly, I'm, and, and I'm saying I was a depressed Penn State fan who saw a team lose. Oh, it was a terrible game, and so I'm upset about it. But from the fan perspective, it was 12 o'clock, 4 o'clock, 8 o'clock, every game. There were a bunch, multiple games at every window that were nuts. It was one of the greatest days. So as much as I feel bad, I didn't go to the Penn State-Iowa game, and I'm upset why I didn't go because they lost. But the fact is that Saturday was great. Sunday was great to watch football. But I did go to Yankees-Red Sox on Tuesday night, uh, the wild card game in Boston. Remember, I went Sunday. I was there for the Patriots game, the Patriots-Buccaneers. So I stayed an extra two nights and went and yeah, saw Yankees-Red Sox. The wild card winner-take-all game, the Red Sox won 6-2. And we'll talk about that in just a minute. But you may notice Ira's on the phone, and there's a good reason for that, Ira. You're in L.A., and what else would you do when you're in L.A. right now? Well, I flew here to the game. I mean, this is Dodgers-Giants game three tonight. I mean, we're taping this a couple hours earlier, uh, so that's why we're not going to have the Red Sox cover the Red Sox-Rays uh, game. But I'm so pumped to go to the game tonight. Dodger Stadium against the Giants. Uh, this is just, I mean, it's great when you go to the airport and see the excitement and enthusiasm of the fans. Uh, this is this town, more than anything, is a Dodger town, even more than a Laker town. This is a Dodger town, and this is playoffs. And the Giants, they've never faced each other in the playoffs because usually when there are the Dodgers and the Giants, they were in the, uh, they only, only one team went to the World Series when they were both in New York. So this is just a great, um, they've had two exciting games, well, actually one really exciting game. And, uh, but it's the tears is tied one, one back to Dodger stadium. I'll be here for tonight's game and tomorrow night's game. So Ira, one of my favorite things about hearing about your travels is that just wacky stuff seems to happen sometimes. And among the wackiest was when you were getting into LA. Oh, crazy. Last night I fly in uh, very, very late around 11 o'clock at night. I'm getting on the Hertz to get my car. I'm on the shuttle and someone says, someone's trying to steal a car. They asked, I was sitting in the front of the bus or standing in the front of the bus. They said, block the entrance. They told the bus driver to block the entrance. And I'm like, there's a whole full car of like 50 people, a bus full of 50 people. I don't think we should be blocking entrance doing a car. We go right up to the entrance on the one side and where there's those big things, those steel things that stop people from coming in out of nowhere. And that's SUV flies through and crashes into the entrance section, but doesn't get through. Just and the airbags did not deploy, but the car was not even disabled. Then it backed up, and I thought it was going to just fly toward the bus. And next thing I know, it comes down through the fence on the right side <laughs> and goes through like a whole fence and all these things, things flying up, and just pulls right out. So it stolen the car and went there. So we go in another entrance. I mean, I'm in shaking, and I go in another entrance, and I'm there waiting for my car, and they have on TV like a screen of a chase of a car, and it was the car that I just saw a second ago, and I'm like screaming. I'm like, oh, my gosh, that's the car that just happened that we just saw. And I'm like, oh, my this L.A. is so dangerous. Like, I'm so nervous. You just go there, and you're here for a second, and you see a Grand Theft Auto. It looks like a video game, and you're in real life watching it. Absolutely crazy, some of the stuff that you get into, and we get to hear all about it here on Ira on Sports. So, Ira, let's go back. You uh, Tuesday night, we're at the play-in game for the Yankees and the Red Sox. I, of course, am a Yankee fan, so not thrilled with the not thrilled with the six uh, two result. But 
I'm sure you've been to Fenway before. I've been there as well. And there's just something magical about Fenway. You know, we talk about a lot of um, baseball stadiums and arenas, pretty much in any sport that, you know, they're, they're great and all. But there's just a feel about being in downtown Boston and being there that you really can't get anywhere else. So many stadiums, I say, so many stadiums say, oh, this is like an action, but KFC Park says, it's like an old school park. It's like an old school. Everyone says they're trying to be an old school park or are features of it. Fenway is that. That's all it is. It's only old school. And that's what makes it so neat and quaint. And there's bars and restaurants all around. And you walk down and, and there's the souvenir stands and the souvenir stores. And you go in and everything about it is like you're back 100 years. It is crazy in terms of just the catwalks and the entrances and the signs. And first of all, everyone's talking in the, the accent. I think you have to work <laughs> to get that. The whole English accent or Boston English accent, New England accent. And uh, it was just, it is just so cool to go and see everything about the stadium, how the food is, the vendors. I have never, look, if you go, I would like someone to go to a Red Sox game and when a vendor passes you, just buy it and eat it. I, it had to be able to be over $1,000 and probably like 50,000 calories because I've never seen more vendors than stand in my life. And the other thing is if you go to a game, I sat in the load seats, which are great seats, almost like 20 rows from the field, but the field boxes are right in front of that and those are better because there's that section where everybody walks around. It's like Grand Central station in that in that section between the loads and the field and i was lucky because you stood so much for the game and i was four rows up so i wasn't really blocked and people were uh the people in front of me weren't that tall whatever it helped but it was interesting the other aspect of the game was so many yankee fans over there so many red sox fans and there were like there i saw a pair of twins there was like a brother and sister twins they were sitting in front of me and they both had foam fingers one was dressed as a yankee fan one is a red sox and their mom and dad were both yank one was a yankee and one was a red sox and they were like pounding each other with the foam fingers throughout the entire game and you saw that like boyfriends and girlfriends husbands wives everything it's like it ever so many people were like yankee fans and red sox fans all interspersed and they would go out with chants like the yankees with the bad word and the red sox with the bad word <laughs> it was like back and forth so it was like sometimes you go to these sporting events and, like half the stadium on one side is one fan half the other this was clearly yankees and red sox all in midst of the fans so ira the <clears throat> yankees down the stretch of the season, have been playing pretty well against Boston. I felt fairly confident in their, um, you know, with their ace on the mound going into Fenway to get a win, and it became apparent very quickly that this game was not going to go the way they wanted it. Their $324 million star just didn't have it right out of the gate. Two years ago, I have a friend, Rob, and Rob told me, he goes, I don't trust Garrett Cole. I don't trust him. I don't trust him. He's terrible. It's the worst investment. Just wait for a big game. They played well in the postseason last year, but when that in the middle of the first inning, it was clearly he had nothing. And I'm like thinking what Rob said, because Garrett Cole, for $324 million, and Scott Burr said, this is the guy. This is we went on there. This is our superstar. And uh, uh, that's what we expected. To, and he just was disastrous. I mean, he didn't even get out. He had the shortest outing of his career, two innings, gave up three runs. And it was like one of those things where they pulled him and was like, if he would have stayed in there, it might have been 10 runs. But he was not ready for the moment. Um, Evaldi for the Red Sox was pitched much, much better. But you could just see it. I mean, in the middle of the year, they took the start, the spider tack. And I think, of course, that, that bothered not letting him throw with that, the tar on his hands or whatever attack he had. And that's certainly his, re his record wasn't, uh, you know, the second part of the season was not as good as the first part. But from the whole game, I have pictures of Garrett Cole pitching for the Pirates when his release, when he was, when his release points, and he was coming toward the mounds. There are pictures in this game. It looked like he was throwing the ball, like skipping it across the pond. He had his... Um, follow through was all over the place. You, he was walking around the mound. He was nervous. Clearly, did not feel comfortable out there. And in, in a game they had to win. I mean, this is a winner take all game. And what he was brought here for. And it's like the joke is he's not just Mr. May, as one Steinbrenner called Dave Winslow. <laughs> he's like Mr. May between the Pirates and the Marlins. <laughs> You know, like at PNC Park in front of 5,000. Like, that's not – you need a pitcher that comes out there. Like, Roger Clemens is going to pitch with everybody and pitch great, and he just did not – You they needed a starting pitcher like that, and he did not do that. No, he was – you know, there's rumors now that you can see him mouthing take me out when they came out for the mound visit. He knew he didn't have it. I don't know if it was the pressure on top of that, but every pitch he threw looked – extremely hittable. There was no deception to any of his pitches. His fastball was just never in the right spot. It, it was bad. L let's keep going from there because the Yankees did 
kind of make it a game up until some maybe errors later on? Well, I think in the first inning, Samson hits the ball, admires it. It was one of those things that in Fenway Park when you're there. Remember, the, the wall was so big, and it's just a weird part. He hits it, and I'm taking pictures of him hitting. I look back. He didn't even leave the batter's box. I mean, he barely he barely made a single when he should clearly had a double. But after the, Devers walked Bogart's home run, but the Yankees – they had Stanton, they had Rizzo, and, and they had Judge. And after that, the whole Gallo, Torres, Gardner, Ursa, Agusha, Velasco. I mean, this is not the Yankee team that was strong in the back end. So without a good starting pitcher, they were not going to get anything. And then uh, in the third and fourth, fifth innings, the Yanks go one, two, three. And the sixth inning, it was 3 nothing, And then Rizzo, it's a home run, make it 3-1. Judge hits a single. And then Stanton singled and had a, it was a double to center. And Judge comes home, and it was a great throw to throw him out. And the more I think about it, though, I would have still sent him. I mean, it was like one of those plays where Judge had to make it. But when you look at the back end of the Yankees lineup with Gallo, they would have not got any hits. So I, I'm not going to criticize Nevin, the third base coach, on that play. Because as much as he was out, I don't know. It's like the more I think about the Yankees, at first I said, that was terrible. They should never send him and got thrown out. And if you go on Iron Sports on Facebook and on Iron Sports on Instagram, I have amazing pictures of Judge getting tagged out at home plate. And also just when he got tagged out, he just sat on the plate. It was like I have this picture of him just sitting right on the plate with his hands, holding his hands. It's a great shot. But I don't know what you thought. I, I just think, boy, the way the Yankees were hitting, that is, that really that was their only shot for him to score. Them. Nah, I, I'm totally against it. I, I, one out, you know, you, you at least hope that Joey Gallo could put a ball up, you know, even for a sack fly to get that in. He just didn't have a shot. I, I think he started slowing down, too, before Phil Nevin gave the, gave the go-ahead. It was a great play by them, but he was out by a mile. And I wouldn't be putting my guys at risk like that. With one out. What bothered me is that Nevin is defending it, you know, um, earnestly. And A-Rod came out and said, um, you know, that, that was a bad call. You shouldn't have sent him. And he goes on a tirade against A-Rod. Not that I'm a big A-Rod fan, but saying, like, oh, A-Rod's never been in that situation before. Like, never been a third base coach. He's looking at the, He's seen enough baseball to know if it's a good, good play or not. So that whole thing just kind of rubbed me the wrong way. And I'm not going to be surprised if him, Boone, and that entire staff is gone uh, before the start of next season. Well, I look, this whole problem with the Yankees is Cashman. I think that Cashman has been running this team. We can go back through the history of the Yankees, and I think oh, I'll spend some time on it. But the fact is that when uh, Steinbrenner, Swindell was the son-in-law of Steinbrenner, was going to take over the team, uh, then divorced Steinbrenner's daughter, and then so he's out. And that let Cashman with Hank and Howe sort of run this. And it's almost like Cashman is the owner of the team. Like, he's been there so long, and it's just amazing. And just to allow a team with and they have the highest payroll year in in year out and to put this team together and they really just they, they, there's no table sitters they just go to swing to hit home runs they remember the home run hitters even when they have the right to go out in the make the moves like the Rizzo and the Gallo moves um, still not enough and they still finish in the regular season eight games back behind the Rays uh, I just don't know what's going to happen with this team but um, just and then at the end it was just they just sort of just didn't even put a fight up at the end, uh, but it was like, you're right. I think what happened from this perspective of the sixth inning is after Judge got thrown out, that was like the wind out of the It was a backbreaker. It was like the game was over then. Yeah, oh, yeah, no, they quit right after that. And that was another reason why I, I wasn't for it. You know, it, the little momentum we got in the game was suddenly dashed uh, right out of the stadium. It's Iron Sports, True Oldies Channel, Mike Balsamo here as well. Andrew Catalan of CBS Sports joins us in just a little bit. Let's talk about the other play-in game, Ira, because we got lucky with these two. You know, we had Yankees, Red Sox, and one, and then you get the, you know, on paper, best team in baseball versus what was maybe the hottest team in baseball in the Cardinals. Yeah, Wainwright versus Scherzer. Um, I think one of those things where they took Scherzer out after four innings, Wainwright went out after five innings, but Justin Turner had a home run of the fourth to tie, and then the Dodgers come up with Chris Taylor with a home run in the ninth inning to win 3-1. Uh, gives the Dodgers a lot of enthusiasm in terms of Scherzer was, had one of those outings where he really didn't have his best stuff, and he just he's a good enough pitcher, though, unlike Cole to yeah. understand the situation and says, I don't have my stuff, but I'm still going to fight and stay in it. I think that's one of the criticisms of Cole was, Cole realized he didn't have his best stuff, but he didn't have the fight to stay in that, like a Scherzer did, who clearly wasn't pitching great, but sort of said, look, I'm going to keep the score at 1-1, and then, and then the relievers in between Kelly and Grottero and Trine and Nabel and Jansen, boy, the Dodger bullpen just came up strong and shut down the, the Cardinals the rest of the game, but uh, uh, boy, it would have been very upsetting for the Dodgers to have uh, win 106 games and then 
could not make uh, they could even just out of the wild card game. No, that that's a great observation. That when a bad when a good pitcher has a bad day, he can still salvage it, and that's the exact opposite of what the Yankees got from Garrett, Garrett Cole. So let's talk about some of these series. I it's been I, I I've been wrong on a lot of these games. I've it's been really hard to pick these, but we've had some great baseball. I think the one thing that we've seen in both the Rays series and also the Dodgers is that if you win the wild card game, boy, that next game, you're not ready. Two, two days you have to come in. The other team's been rested because game one, Logan Webb pitched for the Giants seven and two-thirds innings, ten strikeouts. They didn't give up any runs. Uh, they bring in Rodgers for an inning and then Duvall to close. But they beat Walker Bueller. But really, the, the Dodgers put up no fight whatsoever in that game. Um, and so same thing with the Red Sox after they beat the Yankees. That, that wild card game does take a lot out of you, and uh, that's what happens. But then they, in both series, the teams came back. Because in game two, the Dodgers came back 9-2. Uh, they, they beat the, the Giants. Uh, Urias pitched well. Gosman was pulled maybe too early, but... Boy, Cody Bellinger came after. I mean, they put his stats up, like hitting 160 for the year. He comes out and hits a double. Paul, A.J. Pollock hits another double, drove in, uh, in four runs in the sixth inning and win that to set up tonight's game. Because really, if the Dodgers lose that game, too, they're down 2-0. They're not winning three straight against the Giants at all. Uh, but now we have a series. It's a three-game series. The next two here in L.A. and then one game in San Francisco. But uh, that was a must-win for the Dodgers. And then let's talk about uh, the Braves and Brewers here. Well, in terms of game one, Corbin Burns, it's really one of those pitchers of who's going to pitch great. Corbin Burns for the Brewers, the first game, six innings, lights out. The Brewers win. Second game, Max Free to the Braves, six innings, lights out. Braves are able to win with Freddie Freeman and Albies. And then today, uh, uh, Ian Anderson pitched well for the Braves, and Jock Peterson, a former Dodgers, hits a three-run home run, uh, setting them up for, for a win tonight. So um, it, was like, it was like one of those games in terms of, each now the Braves have had two great pitching performances. The Brewers had one, but uh, the Braves are dangerous. I mean, they are a dangerous team in terms of a lot of. They have the one team with the stars, and and the Brewers. You were hoping the Brewers would get sort of better. Even I mean, it's almost like they were playing. I've been mean, playing with no margin for error, and to be down two one in the series is tough. Yeah, and watching uh, Christian Yelich's fall from grace, nine home runs this year after you know the last three years putting up MVP type stats. If they just had half of of his production of, of your, they might be in better shape. You were right on about the play-in game in the Red Sox-Rays series. I thought the Rays were just going to roll through through Boston. They crushed him in game one because it is tough to go and play again, not have your ace and all that. But since then, the Red Sox have bounced back. Well, yeah, I mean, that's what is, Azarena for the Rays stole home, hits a home run, 5-0. They win 5-0. And then that second game, the Rays were up 5-2. And you're like, okay, this is going to be over, the Red Sox. But then I think the Red Sox, they love these slugfests. I mean, there's some teams like the Astros and the Red Sox. It's like you want to play a 14-16, 14-12 game. They're so ready. I mean, they, <laughs> And no one can outslug the Red Sox and, and really the Astros, those two teams. Bogart's at a home run. Verdugo a home run. Martinez a home run. Devers a home run. Uh, just a bad loss. I mean, they really need that to, to go to lose 14-6. And, and it just, to me, it showed the Rays were like, wow, maybe other bullpen isn't that good. I mean, it, you don't know anybody on their team. You don't know any of the pitchers. They seem to pull out the cash, uh, plays all the other manager, has all the right buttons, pushes every button right, but it didn't work. And then last night, I'm on a plane flying out here, and I'm trying to watch this. I'm watching a football game, and my screen is going in and out. I'm pounding the screen trying to watch this game. But um, 4-2 Boston, and then uh, Franco, it's a home run for the Rays in the eighth, and then Azarena doubles in the ninth to tie 4-4, and then Nick Pavetta for the Red Sox. You want to talk about someone who come in a reliever and pitch four innings, no runs, just keeps the Red Sox in the game. And that crazy in the 13th inning, if anyone stayed up and saw it, is that uh, Kiermaier doubled off the wall and uh, uh, there was a man on first base. But the way they ruled that the Red Sox kicked the ball for the race, the Red Sox kicked the ball into the stands, so it was a ground rule double. But they ref, the umpires could have said Diaz had scored for the race, but he didn't. He put him on third base. The Red Sox get out of the inning, and they come out in the bottom of 13th, and then Vasquez is a two-run home run to uh, walk off home run to win the game. But I think that 13th inning was really was a weird ending in terms of how, again, it, it was clear that Diaz was going to score. I think the umpires should have given him the run. But then people will say, well, it doesn't matter because they scored two runs in the bottom of the 13th. So then, like I said, I, I've had really a hard time picking these games. I thought the White Sox starting pitching, especially that, that front, that top three, was going to be able to put Houston down. And it's been nothing like that at all. No, this is uh, the, the 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 Astros were able to go in the, the games one and two and uh, and win, but it's just like 
when you look at the Astros and you have Altuve, Brantley, Bregman, Alvarez, Dorio, Correa, Correa's draft is, is batting sixth in the uh, in the lineup. I mean, Alvarez was hitting a double and home runs. This is the Astros team that everyone thought cheated, everyone whatever, but in the, in the, missing all their frontline starters. But this still is the colors pitched well enough for the first game and had a good pitching game. But the Astros, wow, they go up 2-1. Now, last night was crazier. Houston was up 5-1. And then the Sox just started pounding the Astros' bullpen and, and, uh, and, and were able to win 11-1 the rest of the game. But uh, the, the White Sox have a lot of good players themselves. Um, but it was like – it was one of those games. We'll see what happens. I mean, the Astros sort of had – it was almost like this series was supposed to be over last night at 5-1, and then they blew it. But – Boy, I mean, this is a team with the, I think if the Astros and the Red Sox meet up, you're, you're looking at every game could be double digits each team. So, Ira, have you heard um, some people on the White Sox are claiming that Houston really seems to be seeing the ball a lot better at home than they do on the road. And they're they're not saying any, you know, not making any accusations, but they're saying to look at it like they really are good at laying off breaking balls and stuff at home as compared to on the road. I don't know if I put any, you know, credence into it, but once a cheater, you know, you always got to kind of take that second look. I, I don't know about that. It could just I be mean, sore I'm losers. Sure. I, I think that there's so many eyes on the Astros right now that I can't imagine that anything would be going on. But uh, I think a lot of his game gamesmanship on the White Sox part uh, with uh, you have LaRusso and Baker, both managers in their 70s. They're going to pull out every <laughs> every trick in the trade in terms of trying to figure this out. So, uh, um, But uh, I, I, I would find if they were cheating in this after everything they went through, that would be crazy to That'd be like A-Rod getting caught twice with steroids. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's Iron Sports, True Oldies Channel. I'm Mike Balsamo. Andrew Catalan of CBS Sports Play-by-Play joins us in a moment. But first, something happened that I didn't think would happen, Ira. And I, I got to tell you, I found a lot of joy in this. Alabama upset by unranked Texas A&M. Well, first of all, Texas A&M, we're saying, they keep saying unranked. It was the first time in 100 games Alabama's lost to an unranked team. But Texas A&M was one of the top five. Two weeks ago, Texas A&M was one of the top five teams in the country who just suffered two losses, uh, the last one to Arkansas. But the point is, is that Texas A&M was – was highly ranked coming into the season, but Calzati, their backup quarterback, played amazing. This game was crazy. Alabama got down 17-7 in the first quarter, and they got Denver's third and goal on Texas A&M's one, and Bryce Young, their quarterback, throws an interception. I'm like, what are you throwing an interception for? Third and one, just run the ball in and score. And, uh, and when Calzani throws an interception back, but all Bama could get is a field goal. And it seemed like that's all they were doing was kicking field goals. But it was 24-10 at halftime, and then Bama got the ball to start the second, and, uh, but, but really did nothing. But when, finally, at 24-10, they block a punt. So you're like, okay, Alabama just blocked the punt for Texas A&M. That everything, order's been restored to the universe, 24-17. They kicked the ball off to A&M. What did they do? They returned the kickoff for a touchdown to make it 31-17. So then it was back and forth where Alabama comes back, scored 31-24. But in the third quarter, Bama ran 24 plays. Texas A&M only ran six. And you're just waiting for Alabama just to take control and win the game. They were few by 18. I thought they win the game by 14 toe points. And they drove down there. They made it 38-31 Alabama. And with Jamison Williams, just these – Great catches. But then AM comes down, scores at 38-38. Calzati, their quarterback, on the play that they tied it, gets hurt. Looks like he's going to be out of the game. They're going to have a walk-on quarterback. Goes in the tent, comes out amazingly, <laughs> back in there. And Bama, this is where it was 38-38. What happens? Bama has the ball. They go three and out. With like two minutes to go in the game. How did they go three and out? And then A&M gets the ball back, and Calzati drives him down, and they kick a field goal and win the game. But that was like, wow. I mean, Alabama, you're waiting for Alabama to come back in this game and win it, and just a weird ending and their inability to score. And, and look, maybe I overrated Alabama. I thought they were – this is that they did not play well, but getting down early in the game hurt, and then I think not certainly not converting at the end was a disaster when it was 38-38. So where do you think this drops Alabama to? Because I, I keep asking people this, and the answers are all – all over the place. I got some people saying they'll fall out of the top 10. Most people think like seven to eight range. I'd rank them as two. <laughs> I'd move them down one spot and move Georgia up. What do you think? Well, I think they fell in the poll to five, but I think the situation is if you're looking at an Alabama and even a Penn State, all, if Alabama wins their side, which is the Mississippis and the Arkansas and the LSU and the Auburn, they win and they play Georgia and they beat Georgia. Bama is going to be in the playoffs. There's no way because yeah. Georgia is not, not going to lose to anybody. 
So when Bama beats Georgia, then the question is whether they with Georgia, and then you're looking at two SEC teams getting in, which we've talked about this before, that I really think that Bama and Georgia – now, Bama has to beat Georgia, but Bama has, and Bama can't afford any more losses. But if they really control their destiny, because if they win that and they beat Georgia, they're going to be in the college football playoffs. Clearly, they're going to uh, beat the number one team in the country. They'll beat all these other teams, so they'll be in the playoffs. So, they, so I think – I would not drop them, but right now, do I think – like, Iowa's two, Cincinnati's three, and Oklahoma's four. Bama is clearly better than Iowa, Cincinnati, and Oklahoma. So, yeah, I agree with you. They're number two but right now in the poll, per se, but they still control their own destiny. The actual number two is Georgia at the moment. Um, big win over a ranked team in Alabama, 34-10. Well, yeah, well, that was – well, Georgia moved up to one. They were two going in the game, but they, they beat Auburn 34-10. Uh, this is the 126th meeting of the team, which I was surprised because it was like the second most of any of the BCS schools. But Auburn came in the game averaging 40 points. I saw them against Penn State. The offense is good, um, but they just – Georgia's defense is just in another level right now. They're just, they're just stopping everybody. Uh, they're up, they, Georgia was up 17-3 at halftime. And uh, they gave up a touchdown when it was like 34 to 24, 34 to three. They have a touchdown. It was the only second touchdown they gave up all year. Georgia's defense has scored more touchdowns than they've given up, which is pretty <laughs> amazing. And they're winning with Stetson Bennett as their backup quarterback. J.T. Daniels, their star quarterback, has been sitting out the last three games. And Georgia still wins, um, dominating with rushing the ball and, uh, and, and just in, with a, a great defense. So, Ira, uh, I believe it's the first Penn State game you haven't been at this year, and maybe that was the difference, that, you know, they don't, they don't see you out there, and they kind of lost the morale a little bit. No, Penn State lost because we talked about this, and I strongly – I said when Will Levis transferred to Kentucky, who's the backup quarterback, and Sean Clifford was going to be there. I, I was impressed with how Clifford played this year, but there's been transfers. Everybody – this year there was no sitting out, so anybody could transfer. So you had all these players transfer from different schools. If I was a, starting at NC State, I transferred to uh, one school. Everybody – all the school players transferred left and right. Ohio State has three players on their team that have started – Besides uh, C.J. Stroud, they've had three other quarterbacks that have started college football games. But the point is, is that Penn State had nobody, and they were they were they were not ready for it. And Clifford, when Clifford got out with an injury, I mean, I was shocked. Penn State, well, Clifford played terrible. He threw an interception at the end zone on the five. Penn State holds them. Then they even lose P.J. Mustafer, their defensive great defensive back. They come back and they score a touchdown, and then Clifford threw another interception. Uh, and, but all Penn State did, it's like every time Clifford made a mistake, Penn State's defense just would not break. They were. This is the one of the best defenses, if not the best defense I've ever seen Penn State have. Their Iowa's quarterback uh, was uh, Petrus was one for nine to start the game, and uh, so at seventeen three. But then Clifford got in, injured, and Tashawn Robinson, who's their backup quarterback, who's a freshman, comes into the game, and the first time he fumbled a snap. Then they had three straight illegal procedure penalties, and it was like third and 29, and Penn State ran from the six for nothing. And, but then when Iowa gets the ball back, Penn State still stops them on defense. And then Robeson then throws another interception, and then Penn State stops them again on the three and out. It was just amazing in terms of what happened, in terms of uh, John Robinson was not ready for this game at all, but not having a backup quarterback that has played. This team, Penn State, with great Dotson and, and P.J. Washington as wide receivers, they, they, they have good, oh, good running backs and a great, great defense. They deserve better. Just any quarterback would have came in there. Uh, Penn State started the second half. They went three and out to start there, stopped Iowa. But uh, they finally got a field goal. But uh, it was like Penn State t- turned the ball over four times on turnovers and only gave up three points. It was like every time they, they just were, were able to stop them. But then Iowa finally, um, just Penn State had four straight possessions. They went three and out for a total of minus seven yards. And then there was this one point where it was thir- they, they were just able, on third and 29, uh, Penn State just more false starts. They punted, and there was seven minutes to go. Petrus threw a 50-yard pass down there. They took the lead to make it 23-20, and then Penn State just quarterly couldn't score at all. But it was just a disaster to watch Penn State. I mean, Robinson was 7 for 21 for 34 34 yards and two interceptions. But it was the the procedure penalties and the fumbles and this and that. They just needed a quarterback. This Penn State is – but they still control their destiny. Anyone who comes out between Ohio State, 
Michigan, Michigan State, Penn State, they play Iowa. Iowa's not going to lose to anybody. Uh, that team would, would definitely play for the national championships. As much as it's depressing for Penn State, if they get Clifford back, and they will not announce what injury he has, it's top secret, then Penn State knows the chance. But it was one of those weird, weird games uh, and a huge win for Iowa and a bad loss for Penn State. Let's talk about Michigan and Nebraska, because this one was much closer than I thought it was going to be, 32-29 to 29 in favor of the Wolverines. Well, huge win. I mean, now Michigan State, Michigan, Penn State, and Ohio State uh, are all in Iowa. Five teams are in the top nine in the country. So the Big Ten is just rolling. And Nebraska, just a heartbreak for them. Uh, there was a there was close games back and forth the whole game. Michigan uh, uh, took the lead. It took the lead. Uh, but uh, but uh, the fact is that Nebraska had the ball at 29-29. And Adrian Martinez, the quarterback, fumbles the ball. Michigan returned to the 18, kicked the field goal uh, to win it. But this is just Nebraska is now 0 for 10 versus ranked opponents under Scott Frost. Just one of those games where they really had it. And Cade McNamara for Michigan is finally Michigan as a quarterback that's winning games. And everyone's been on Harbaugh's case, but they're they're undefeated, ranked ninth in the country. And uh, but a huge win for Michigan and just sets up this whole rest of the season. I told you with Michigan, Michigan State, Penn State, Ohio State all playing each other in the next month and which will determine everything. Let's talk about Oklahoma and Texas, because if there's anyone who's been a, a little bit of a critic against Spencer Rattler, it's you, and it's starting to, you know, his play is starting to back up, back it up more and more. Well, it was the craziest game. I mean, I'm listening in the first quarter. Texas is up 28-7. Rattler fumbled the ball, intercepted the ball. Here's a guy who everyone said was going to be the number one player taken in the draft, which clearly is going to be not even drafted at this point. But then, and Texas blocks an Oklahoma punt, and then Oklahoma brings in freshman Caleb Williams for a fourth-and-one play on the, uh, that he goes fourth-and-one and runs for 68 yards. Then they score a field goal and make it 28-17. But Texas goes down and scores with Deion Rodson. They was up 35-17. And the first half, Thompson, the quarterback for Texas, had eight completions, four for touchdowns, and Robinson 100, 101 yards. But Caleb Williamson uh, was just um, Williams was just amazing coming into the game, uh, freshman for, for Oklahoma. 16 for 25, 212 yards. He rushed for 88 yards and a touchdown. But it's still at the end of the first half. Texas is up 38 to 20. Uh, and uh, to think that they were able to come back. I mean, Oklahoma just was – it just they drove down, made it 41-23. Uh, then Oklahoma threw a, four, a 50-yard pass for a touchdown, make it 41-39. They made the two-point conversion. And then, uh, and then Texas went down and scored, and then it was just, Oklahoma came back down again. Kennedy Brooks had a 33-yard touchdown just to win the game, 55 to 48. Uh, they were out. Oklahoma outscored Texas in the second half, 35 to 10. Uh, Oklahoma ended up with 662 yards. Texas 516 yards. Uh, just a mess. And Oklahoma's been winning these games. I mean, they're undefeated, and it's like every game it thinks you're gonna they're gonna lose. They almost lost West Virginia. They lost the week before. Um, but just a crazy game. Uh, and one of those where they're they're undefeated in the Big 12, and so is Oklahoma State and Texas. I Sarkeet, I have to question what were they doing on defense? Just a terrible performance to, to blow a lead like that. They stopped even tackling. And I mean, it was, it was a point where Texas probably should have just like down the ball every time, and they could have probably ran out of the clock with the lead they had. Let's talk about uh, Maryland Ohio State because this one wasn't close, and we didn't think it was going to be. <laughs> no, you know Ohio State right now. CJ Stroud, their quarterback, 24 for 33, five touchdowns. They have Wilson, uh, a lobby at wide receivers. They might have a third. Uh, Smith uh, could also be another first-round draft pick as a wide receiver. But Ohio State's rolling. And Maryland, a team that starts out great, now has lost two weeks in a row. But uh, just a, just a, one of those things where Ohio State's sitting there ready. I mean, they're putting in, making the case that, boy, they, if you're an Ohio State fan and you look what Alabama did and you're like, Georgia has no offense, like – I think a lot of teams are saying, look, this is our chance. This could be the year Ohio State wins a national championship. And even with the loss a few weeks ago to Oregon, that if they, they control their own destinies in order to get in. A little bit of an upset here with uh, BYU going down to Boise State. Boise State beat BYU. But the key part of that is that it lets, sets it up for Cincinnati. Remember, Cincinnati beat Indiana, beat Notre Dame. Cincinnati's sitting there at number three. They're not in a Power 5 conference. Cincinnati goes undefeated 
that's going to be their case. They're going to be the only non-Power 5 conference team that uh, is, out, is, is still in the play, and that, that's why I mean, they destroy Temple, so it wasn't even close. But the point is that with BYU out, now Cincinnati will be the team that everyone's going to talk about the rest of the year, and that's why that Notre Dame win was crucial for them. Now we have Coastal Carolina, who had the coach on the show. They, they, they beat Arkansas State 52-20, to 20, and – but the problem with Coastal Carolina is that they're not going to play any of the other. They might run the season again undefeated, but they're not going to have the, the quality wins that Cincinnati had, so they'll never be in the playoff. But another great year for Coastal Carolina to, to have these back-to-back amazing years. We are starting to run out of time. Got to get to Andrew Catalan soon. Any other games you want to touch on? Uh, just that Arkansas Old Miss, one of the craziest games I, I, I've ever seen, where Old Miss won 52-51, Arkansas tied at the end of the game in terms of they, they scored a touchdown, and they went for two because it was like it was every single possession. Was it, it was just each team was scoring. And what's interesting is Kendall Bryles and Jeff Leedy were offense coordinators on both teams, Bryles at Arkansas, Leedy at Old Miss, and they've been best friends their entire lives. They're actually brother or brother-in-laws, but they've known each other. There's pictures of them when like four and five years old, and here these two guys are like, orchestrating this crazy game as every team is scoring. Uh, but Mississippi ended up winning the game over Arkansas. But what a great, what an exciting game. But uh, just in uh, Florida beat Vanderbilt 42-40, and Florida State had an upset over UNC, which is crazy. UNC is having a terrible year, and Florida State forgot their second win uh, to go 2-4. and four. And it does stand to be mentioned, uh, University of Miami quarterback De'Ara King is going to have shoulder surgery that ends his season and probably his run at Miami. What are we watching this week? Uh, the big game is Kentucky, which is undefeated. They beat LSU last week. They're at Georgia. Now, Georgia's favored by 22 points, so you have two undefeated teams. But you have Purdue at Iowa. Iowa's favored by 11 in that game. And TCU at Oklahoma. Uh, Ohio State, Penn State, and Michigan are actually off this week. And then Oklahoma State, which is undefeated at Texas. Uh, Oklahoma State's favored by four. And Florida's at LSU. And LSU, Florida's favored by 11. This is a little, this week, I always say this week might not be as good as last, but last week's was tremendous. A lot of big uh, uh, matchups about the Kentucky Georgia game. And look, if Georgia's going to lose to someone like Florida, Kentucky is playing really, really well. So this is another test for them. Let's see what Kentucky does. Uh, being undefeated, they haven't. They're six and zero. It's the first time since 1950 they've been six and zero. So this is a huge time, you know, for them for in, in Lexington to go against. We know Kentucky for basketball. This is uh, now it's football time. It's Ira on Sports True Oldies Channel. Mike Balsamo here as well, and Ira. What a boxing match on Saturday night. Even people that are not fans of boxing would have had a great time watching Fury Wilder 3. Oh, I, what did I say on this show? I said this was going to be a great fight. You have Fury at 6'9", 277 pounds against Wilder, 238, 6'7". Wilder was the champion from 15 to 20 in 2015-2020 when, when he lost to Fury for the title. Fury had beat Klitschko in 2015 and then stopped fighting. But this was the the two largest people to ever fight for the heavyweight title of the world. The first fight was a draw, and uh, in the first fight, Wilder had two knockdowns. Fury uh, had a knock, and then Fury had another knockdown. And then the second fight, um, before COVID shut down, Fury dominated uh, Wilder. But after the fight, Wilder changed his trainer, got rid of Mark Freeland, and brought in Malik Scott, and. Wilder came out ready. He was jabbing. It used to be Wilder just stood there and waited to throw his punch. Now he's jabbing, throwing punches. First round, Wilder was good. Second round, Wilder was doing the same thing. But the third round, Fury knocked out Wilder with 30 seconds to go in the round. And Wilder just got tired throwing punches. But then the fourth round comes back, and Wilder knocks down Fury with 30 seconds to go, and then knocks him down again. That was this huge win. And then from then on, in the fifth round on, both punches were gassed. And Fury was winning the rounds, the fifth through the six, seven, eight, nine. But it, Wilder was never like at a point where you thought Wilder, like Wilder, where you thought, oh, he's out. But he would then start throwing these hands. Like he could win the fight at any time. And they were pounding. These are huge men throwing very hard punches. Totally different than what you're normally seeing from a Mayweather or a Pacquiao or whatever. I mean, they were pounding each other, and Fury was winning those rounds. And then attempt in the 10th uh, 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 round, Fury had a, a shoot shock, knocked down Wilder. But Wilder got up and almost 
knocked Fury out in the 10th round after being knocked down. But in the 11th round, finally, Fury knocked Wilder out. And what you got from the whole fight, I mean, everyone's been saying, it's exciting. They have great fighters throwing heavy punches. No one's just trying to dance around. There was no dancing. There was no whatever. They were going at it. It was just like, it was, it was exactly what boxing should be. This is Ira on Sports, 95.9, We're pleased to have Andrew Catalan from CBS Sports. Andrew, thanks a lot for coming on. Uh, NFL announcer, uh, thanks a lot for coming on Ira Sports today. Ira, always great chatting with you. Thanks for having me. So let's get right to it. Um, you did Patriots-Texans uh, yesterday, a very exciting game, and you got some insight, I guess, into the Patriots, how they came off across the whole Brady situation, and also what's going on in Houston, which really David Culley, their coach, is doing a great job. I mean, that team is in almost every single game. Yeah, so for the Patriots, I mean, I think that, um, you know, they looked flat for a while yesterday, and I think a lot of it has to do with what you mentioned, just all the hype surrounding the game a week ago against Tampa Bay with Tom Brady coming back. And, you know, Hunter Henry, the tight end for the Patriots, told us it felt like a Super Bowl atmosphere. So I think that actually hurt hurt them a little bit in the first half. I mean, credit to the Texans, they played a really solid first half, but the Patriots, especially defensively, did not look good, but they woke up in the second half. There was a few decisions that the Texans made that I thought allowed the Patriots to get some momentum, specifically when they got a little too cute on a punt that ended up getting hit in the own man. It was a zero-yard punt, and ever since that play, I really thought that was the turning point in the game. The Patriots were able to to uh, to come back and beat the Texans. So I, I thought New England has a, a team that they can really grow with. I think Mac Jones is is a very impressive young man. When we met with him, his intelligence jumps off the chart. I mean, he has a good grasp of that system. So I think the Patriots, you know, in November and December will look a lot better than they do now. And the Texans, to your point, I mean, new head coach, a rookie quarterback. I mean, there's a lot of things going on down there. They're trying to change the culture. It's going to take time. You know, they haven't had a lot of draft picks because of all the trades the previous regimes made. So it's going to take time in Houston, but they have some good veteran leaders, Mark Ingram, Kristen Kirksey. I think those types of people will help them change their culture, which is something they desperately need. So when you were talking to the Patriots, uh, the coaches, they have to be surprised by Mac Jones's development so and, and his ability to really step in. I and mean, we're talking about all the rookie quarterbacks. He's probably leading the class right now and, and, and going into it being, what, the 15th pick. I, mean, I think that's a surprise to mostly everybody. Yeah, and I think I, a lot of it is intelligence. I think Mac Jones is a really smart quarterback. And Josh McDaniels told us, no matter what position, it takes a while for rookies to grasp playing in the NFL, whether it's a running back with protections or a quarterback, you know, figuring out the offensive concepts and system. McDaniels used the word unique in describing Jones's understanding of the offense for a rookie. He doesn't wear a wristband. I mean, it's all up in his head. He's a very focused, determined young man. And I think his intelligence is really what's allowed him to play fast and really put some really good performances together for the Patriots. So, you know, he doesn't go down the field a lot. I think that'll come in time. But his completion percentage is off the charts, and he's given the Patriots a chance to win almost every game this year. Wait, he doesn't wear a wrist. Doesn't I mean every quarterback wears those on their arms in the plays? I, I I didn't I didn't notice that he didn't wear one. But that's yeah. I mean, uh, he he's got it all up in his head, and, and I think that's really what. I don't want to say surprise the Patriots because Bill Belichick has a good relationship with Nick Saban. He knew what to expect, I think. But I think that's what it's impressed them is how quickly he's been able to get this offense down. And I don't know if you can go into this a little bit, but in Miami, I mean, the talk is Deshaun Watson, Deshaun Watson, Deshaun Watson. I mean, when did you get a sense in terms of what Deshaun Watson's situation is and whether there is something that could be imminent? I know the trade deadline is coming up in a couple of weeks, um, but I mean, down here in South Florida, that's all we're talking about is Deshaun Watson. Yeah, it's strange. And I was wondering about that, too, because, you know, when you sit down, when I sit down to call a game, that's the first thing that I think of. But I think the people in Houston and Texans and Texans fans, they're almost numb to it now. It's almost as if he's not on the team. Um, he's not at practice. He's not active at the games. He does his own thing. So it's so strange to go down there when, when it's like, oh, where's Deshaun? They're like, oh, yeah. It's almost like they forget that, that he is there. Meanwhile, the rest of the NFL, you and me included, are thinking what's going to happen 
to Deshaun Watson? I don't know the answer to that. I, I mean, I think that obviously the trade deadline coming up, I mean, this could be a good time for them to trade him. I have no in- indication if they will. Uh, but clearly, it's, it's he's doing nothing there. I mean, right? I mean, he's inactive every game. He's getting paid. Uh, but they, they want to get their price for him. So I'm not sure what's going to happen on that front. Uh, and obviously, there's a lot of off-the-field stuff that has to be sorted out as well. But, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if they did move him because he's not doing anything there. So why not take what you can get for him at this point? We'll see if that's what they end up doing. And two weeks ago, you did Baltimore-Denver, um, and you got to see it's, – it's weird. The Ravens are a little under the radar this year. Like, Lamar Jackson is there, but they, got, they, have, they lost all their running backs, J.K. Toppins, Edwards. I mean, they're on. They're bringing Le'Veon Bell. I talked to, like, the fantasy uh, players of the past who are coming on the team. <laughs> but they are playing well, and Lamar Jackson is, is at this level. It, it's almost like for the first time the Ravens are under the radar, and maybe this is the year they, they break through and go, get to the Super Bowl. Yeah, it's so crazy. I mean, you mentioned the running backs, and I think a lot of people thought, well, it's just not their year, right? I mean, all these unfortunate injuries, let alone the running backs. Marcus Peters, one of their best corners out for the year as well in a, in a preseason injury. So, or maybe it was after week one. But in any event, they've had horrible luck with injuries. A lot of people counting them out because of that. And it just seems like that motivates them even more. Uh, they're getting production uh, from Lamar Jackson in the ground game. Obviously, that's a huge help, but I'm really impressed with their receiving core right now. And one guy who hasn't even played yet is Rashad Bateman. He's been on IOR. Sounds like he might come off next week. He's not supposed to play tonight. When we met with John Harbaugh, he was raving about Rashad Bateman. So you're going to add a stud-wide receiver to an already impressive cast with Hollywood Brown and, of course, the tight end Mark Andrews. I think they have a lot of weapons on offense. The defense is starting to figure things out without Peters. And you're right, they're under the radar, but if they get a win against the Colts tonight, there they are at 4-1 and one, and, and always a very dangerous team led by the coaching of John Harbaugh. So they are a team that, in a tough division now, I mean, with the Browns looking good and even the Bengals playing some good football, and it's hard to count out the Steelers, very tough division, but they certainly have a chance to make some noise here in this season. And then a, two, a team you've had twice, I think you did Tennessee at Seattle, Indy at Tennessee. You really got to see this team, and, and they're at 3-2. and two, Defense is struggling, but Ryan Tannehill looks like every year just gets more and more confident ability to be a quarterback in this league, totally different than the player we saw in Miami. And then Derrick Henry, I mean, Mike and I have been talking about this. I don't think there's a player who does their position better than Henry in terms of being a running back. Like every week it, it's 150, 160 yards rushing when other running backs are getting 30 and 40. Yeah, it's hard to compare him to anyone. We asked Pete Carroll about that week two when we did the Seahawks-Titans game. And and he's like, I'm not comparing him to this guy, but there are characteristics that I see in Henry that I also saw in Jim Brown. I mean, he's that type of unique back where it's so hard to game plan for him. He wears you down in the second half, and and he's still an absolute stud in the league. And you're right, that that seems to really help Ryan Tannehill. Their play-action uh, part of their offense is such a critical component for Tennessee. They've had some uneven performances this year. I mean, just look at that Seattle game. The first half looked like they were going to get blown out, came back to win in overtime, and come back and they really lose to the Jets a couple weeks later. I mean, it's just a very strange team to figure out. But you know with the way that they're built, uh, and they've had some injury struggles as well with their wide receivers, Julio Jones and A.J. Brown. But when healthy – They'll be a tough team, especially in that division, which doesn't look very strong this year. Jacksonville and Houston rebuilding, and the Colts have had a had a shaky start as well. I think they'll eventually that the Indianapolis will uh, put some things together, but they've had a real rough start against a tough schedule, and it doesn't get any easier tonight for the Colts. That's right. We're talking to Andrew Catalan of CBS Sports, who broadcast um, these games. You might hear him on. I love when you're on a game. A lot of times I'm at a sports bar or whatever, and Mike's texting me, yeah, Catalan's doing this game, and he's whatever. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not hearing the sound so much in terms of when I'm either at a sports bar or if I'm at, a, uh, if I'm at one of the games. But the first game of the year, you did the Jets. You did Zach Wilson um, in terms of when they played the Panthers. And, and again, like these other rookie quarterbacks, up and down, up and down. And like one week, I've Jet fans are telling me he's the best quarterback. He's our savior. Next week, it's like, I don't even know if he can play quarterback. And like, I want Sam Darnold back. It's, it's one of those things with these rookies. 
Yeah, it's a tough spot there. And I think that they have a lot of issues around him as well as they're trying to get all on the same page. They've had some offensive line injuries. Um, you know, it's tough for a rookie and, you know, first-year play caller in the offensive coordinator, first-year head coach, first-year quarterback. It's going to take some time for the Jets. You know, I think that the, the glimpses of of good play that, that Wilson has shown have been really good. I mean, I think there's something here with this kid, uh, but it's not there yet. He's not consistent week in, week out. And that's to be expected of a rookie, especially a rebuilding team. So I think it's going to take time to fully evaluate how Wilson ends up. And obviously they had a tough one in London. I know they did not play particularly well against the Falcons in London yesterday. So it's going to take some time with the Jets, but I, I really like Robert Sala, their head coach. I think this guy is going to get things going. It's going to take time, but he is the guy that, that you want as a head coach, and, and I think people will see that in a few years down the road. And then I, I just we talked a little before the off-the-air where you said you're doing the Raiders-Broncos game this weekend, and as someone who has Derek Carr in my fantasy, one of my fantasy quarterbacks, I'm certainly interested in these games, and the Raiders are maddening. I mean, they look some games like they are unstoppable, and then other with Waller and everything. I mean, I was at the Steeler game where they won, and then other games like yesterday, it's just they cannot get it going. So they're really, they're, they're definitely a Jekyll and Hyde type team. Yeah, no doubt. And this is a great rivalry. I'm excited to be out in Denver for this one this week. And, you know, both teams starting 3-0, and and now both teams have lost back-to-back games. So it's a, it's a big game in that division, a division where the Chargers continue to excel. So that's a big one coming up Sunday in Denver. And you're right about the Raiders. I mean, you know, you think about their first two weeks and the way they were able to claw claw victories over the first three weeks and, and get it done, and then it just hasn't happened the last couple games. And you know, I, I think I, I like Josh Jacobs. I think he's a really solid back, a guy that John Gruden can rely on. He just hasn't been fully healthy yet this year. He's missed a couple of games. I think once they get him back in the mix, that'll make a big difference for the rest of their – and when I say back in the mix, I know he's playing, but I, he needs to be 100% for the Raiders to have success. So I think that'll help them. But there's a Denver defense that Vic Fangio can really give you – give you headaches the way that he attacks quarterbacks and tries to take out receivers. So I think it's a great little chess match coming up between Gruden and Fangio on Sunday. And I, this is getting back to the Broncos who mentioning this is about, and Mike brought this up on our last show is the teams now, it seems like out of the blue are going for a fourth down. I mean, I've never seen, I mean, I think that uh, Broncos went were like four and four times, five times you're seeing, it used to see, you might see a team go for a fourth down once every two or three games. Now you're seeing it four or five times a game. Have you been, have the coaches been telling you that sort of like a total overall league strategy or why do you see it so much this year? Yeah, I think that, you know, analytics plays a big part in what these coaches do. I don't think there's any coach that goes 100% off the numbers, but they certainly factor it into their decisions. And I think they realize that the odds are in your favor a lot of times on some of these four down situations to go for it. And they want to be aggressive because there's so many points scored in the NFL these days that if you give a good team the football back, you know, there's a good chance they're going to score some type of point. So you've got to try to control the clock and you've got to keep drives going. So you're right. We're seeing a lot of it. I think analytics plays a part of that, though. And, and I wouldn't be surprised if that continues. It's not just an early season thing. I think you're going to see more coaches going for it. And one last question in terms of last night's game. I mean, I'm sure you watched that Bill's Chiefs contest that the bills just look like there's just i mean the steelers were so lucky to get that win the first week which was a crazy with block bunts and everything but the bills look amazing and the chiefs still look like they're really struggling this year yeah i'm fortunate enough to spend some time around the bills in the summer because i call their preseason games and you know i just had a, a great window into how they operate and their culture and i know that's a term that's thrown a lot around a lot but their culture and what their general manager brandon bean and their head coach sean mcdermott have put in place is really something special i mean it, it starts with josh allen well it starts with those two guys but josh allen really carries that so well and brings it into the locker room and you know he's an mvp type candidate they bring back almost everybody from a year ago. So there's so much continuity. And I think that makes them a tough team to beat. And they've added some pieces like Emmanuel Sanders, who has fit in really well. Uh, they are, they are a determined team that has experience and continuity. And to 
me, that makes them the favorite in the AFC. I know that the Chargers have looked very good, and I know that it's hard to count the Chiefs out, but I think that you saw last night that, you know, this is a Buffalo team that right now is, is better than the Chiefs. And, and you know, their, their schedule, they play Tennessee coming up, and after that, they if you look at their schedule, there's there's not a lot there right now. This is a Buffalo team that has a chance to reel off seven, eight wins in a row. And uh, I think they're going to be very dangerous in the playoffs if they play in front of their home fans. It's a, it's a tremendous atmosphere. It's a big advantage for them to play at home. You know, and just and Josh Allen, his arm strength. I was just thinking about that. I I can't think of it. I mean, Aaron Rodgers has a strong arm, but there are plays where he just like runs around in the pocket, and then it looks like when he's on the run, he can. I don't know. If there's any quarterback in the league that could even come close to him in terms of just throwing it down. And his wide receivers, Diggs and Sanders, they're down so deep, and he just you think, oh, that's going to be way over their heads, and he's and he's you know he's he's never going to reach it. I've never seen him not be able to reach a, a receiver. He's able to complete almost every single pass. Yeah, and you know the knock on him coming out was you know the accuracy to be a successful NFL quarterback, and you know if you look at his completion percentage numbers from year one to now, they just keep going up, up, and up. He's had that arm, but it's the accuracy that I think a lot of people have been impressed as to how quickly he's been able to adapt to that in the NFL. And then he's an MVP to me. He's the MVP right now. I mean, he's that good and that special for that team. So you like the Bills coming out of the AFC? Just what's your pick? What, what NFC team you like? The Cowboys, the Packers, the Buccaneers. What, what do you like in the NFC in terms of so far the team that you've been pointing towards to go you know, to the Super Bowl? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that you, you mentioned. So I, I mean, I think the Rams are going to be a, a, a good team for a long time. I think the Packers are going to be in this for a while. But to me, it's you know, I, everyone wants to kind of discredit the Cardinals. They are the only undefeated team. And Kyler Murray is another MVP-type candidate. I know he didn't have huge numbers yesterday against San Francisco. They have a lot of weapons. They have some continuity. They brought back the majority of their team. And I think it's easy to forget them. They don't play in prime time all the time. And they play late afternoon games on the West Coast. And I think people kind of lose sight of them at times. But I called a couple of their games last year. And this is a dangerous team as well in a very tough division. And that's why you, know, you got to talk about the Rams. Seattle will be a little different, you know, without Russell Wilson now for a, for a month or however long he's out. But, you know, I definitely would not discredit the Cardinals. They have a lot of talent on that team. Well, Andrew, I really appreciate you coming on. I know you're super busy. We know we had you on a couple times before, and I just the insight you give us because you get to talk to the players and talk to the coaches is really helpful. And I really thank you for coming on Iron Sports. You got it, Ira. We'll talk again soon. Great stuff from Andrew Catalan. Love having him here on Ira on Sports. So, Ira, I think the best word to describe this week of NFL games was wacky. There was 12 missed field goals and 12 missed extra points. And it was just bizarre all around. The The game that was the most, um, you know, straightforward was the Dolphins taking on, on Tampa Bay. And it's pretty clear that the Dolphins were not going to take that step forward, even with a healthy Tua. I don't think there would have been much of a difference in this game. 45-17, the Bucks roll them. Well, Brady, Tom Brady has played in a zillion games. The first game time he's ever thrown 400, he's now 44 years old, but 400 yards and five touchdowns. And you're watching it as a Steelers fan. I'm watching Antonio Brown, and I wanted to make him trade in fantasy because you're starting to see this, this was the first game that you saw Antonio Brown of the Steelers, Antonio Brown, his ability to get open, his ability to, to get separation, his ability to, after he catches, just run. And that's what he I mean, a 62-yard touchdown, which was the longest pass that Brady's thrown since 2018 and the largest, longest reception for Brown since 2018. And that's what's so dangerous about these Bucks is that you have Godwin, you have Evans, you have Gronkowski that's going to come back, you have Fournette who's running low, and, and the Sims just cannot – just were just they weren't. This was a bad game for them to be in, but then they just couldn't even put up a fight. I mean, that pass where Brissett threw to Waddle, who I, of course Waddle, my fantasy team, like right through his hands for interception. Like, like they even they're just getting a drive and then it didn't work out. But just it was just a disaster all around. And it's like when, when you have the in the NFL, you know how they keep the starters into the end. When you have with like six minutes to go in the game and Blaine Gabbert's playing at quarterback for the Buccaneers, you know as the Finns, it's been a terrible game. They just cannot. They could just cannot stay in the game and it's not just make it competitive so ira we talk about it every week and it keeps going that we get great matchups in primetime national games great matchup if you're a bills fan last night as uh, the buffalo bills rolled the kansas city chiefs 
38 to 20, you could see the difference in the hunger of these teams. And it's, this is probably the first time in two years that Kansas City's not the favorite to win the Super Bowl. They've been bumped down. The Bucks are moved up. And the Bills, they just look like world beaters right now. Well, Josh Allen threw 26 passes for 315 yards. Mahomes had 54, which is double for 272. So he threw 40 more yards less, and it had to have, but used double the number of passes. But now you're seeing Mahomes with a, in a with a, two interceptions, with the fumble. Um, there, there was a rain delay in the third period, uh, uh, the third quarter. That does sound like hockey third quarter. And <laughs> but with 31-20 with with the Bills, I, the, there was a terrible call. 31-20 left with 11:40 left. I thought the Chiefs had had stopped uh, the Bills and were to get the ball back, but they called a, a roughing the passer, which was an absolute call. But then Allen on like third and four was like leaping defenders, and Mahomes then fumbled the ball. But it was like in a game where Hilaire got hurt, Kelsey got hurt. But the Bills, the Chiefs' defense is terrible. They, they, they Bills yeah. average eight yards a play. A play! Eight yards every time. So the point is that the teams now are scoring at will against the Chiefs, and Mahomes now can't match them and that's why they're two and three and it's just like one of these games where yeah the bills are that good and i think the chiefs have problems but the bills are just the bills went into kansas people talked about oh home field this home field that well the bills just went into kansas city and won by 18 points in kansas city let's talk about your pittsburgh steelers and the broncos nice win here against a team that is you know the, the broncos are no slouch granted they went up uh three and oh playing against three pretty bad teams but i don't think anybody thinks that that defense is a walkthrough by any means. So nice win for you guys, even if it is going to cost you juju for about four months. Well, I want to tell you something. I keep saying this. I'm the only person who says this. I'm not giving up on the Steelers. I'm not giving up on Ben. They're going to get in the playoffs with like a crazy record. They might beat someone. I, I Fight till the end. I mean, they had 35. They finally figured this out. To the first time in like a million years, the Steelers had 35 runs and 25 passes, which is everyone's been asking for. Najee Harris had 23 carries, 122 yards. They haven't had a 100-yard runner in like since Connor, like it's last year, but it seems like since Franco Harris that someone ran for 100 <laughs> yards. But but the point is, the only bad thing is the Steelers were up set 24-6 and almost lost this game. The Broncos had these drives where they converted, like, on one drive, like, four fourth downs in a row, um, got down there. They actually had it on first and one, uh, down eight, to try to tie the game, and he threw his first interception of the game. But I just want to talk about the Steelers game because I've got this pack. You know, I'm watching the Steelers game. I wish I was at the game. But I'm not giving up on Ben, not giving up the Steelers. They're going to figure out ways to win. They play Seattle next week without Russell Wilson. So there's a chance to, to go three and three um and this is a 500 team but 500 teams with this year is going to make the playoffs so once you get the playoffs you know anything can happen and let's uh let's talk a little bit about this green bay and Bengals game one once again i love joe burrow this kid just can do no wrong to me he probably should have left the game immediately finishes the game out strong then goes to the hospital because maybe per a, a potential throat contusion we mentioned 12 missed field goals i think half of them were in this game ira sloppy but green bay got the win well Burrow to Chase, they were both, they were quarterback and wide receiver at LSU, but that pass he throws and Chase just knows, I mean, that's why I drafted my fantasy and they're just amazing. And it was, they, Burrow is able, just like Josh Allen, to be outside the pocket and on the run and just throw the ball the whole way down. And it was fun that he was going against Aaron Rodgers because he has a great arm also. So you got to see them against each other, someone who people think is like the next Aaron Rodgers. And that's how, what it was in, in that game. But from that perspective, and then Burrow had a run where he has, when he runs though, he cannot get hit by that. I thought he was done. They, a tackler when he was running down the field, they went right after the knee. I texted you, I think his season's over, ACL done. He hurt his knee last year. He's got to slide or got to avoid those hits. But he, I got to give him credit. Came back in the game, and then he had like a lung, a lung contusion. But the whole issue was the Packers missed three field goals at the end of the game. The, the Bengals missed two. It goes into overtime. Crosby's missing field goals. Uh, the, the Bengals kicker is making, McPherson, McPherson is missing field goals. It was just crazy. And actually, the uh, McPherson in the overtime kicked the field goal, 49 yards. Thought he had made it. Is jumping up and down and celebrating that he made it. But. It, he missed it. So you don't really want, not only do you want to monitor the field goal, you want to be celebrating a miss, a miss a field goal you thought made, and the Packers go down and win. But a devastating loss for the Bengals because they really, but I don't know, like each team missed so many field goals, the Packers three, Bengals two. It's hard to say, like, who deserved to win this game when it was probably deserved to be a tie. Let's uh, wrap it up with some uh, racing. Well, no, let's talk racing first and then a little golf. Um, just 
in terms of racing, the Turkish Grand Prix, uh, Lewis Hamilton started 10th, and it was exciting because he waited. The question is when he was going to pit. It's always about pitting with tires. And at 50, lap 51, he hadn't pitted yet. And he said, I want to stay out on the same tires all the time. They called him in. It was a mistake. He was passed by a couple uh, other uh, people, and so he ended up falling behind. His teammate bought us one for stop and finished second, but because of that, then he fell behind for stop and many uh, two a couple extra points in the whole standings for the thing for the championship. And then in NASCAR, Kyle Larson won in Charlotte, his seventh win of the year. Um, so the final eight is set. There's going to be uh, Larson and Chase Elliott from Hendrick's, uh, Hendrick drivers. Uh, Joe Gibbs has Hamlin, Truex, and Bush. And Penske's drivers are Bellamy, Logano, and Keselowski. What's interesting is that Har- Kevin Harvick crashed Chase Elliott on purpose, and then Elliott came back and was trying to <laughs> crash Harvick, and Harvick was trying to avoid getting crashed, but he crashed himself. So it was like back to old school racing with that. And uh, finally, former um, Honda Classic champion Sung J M got himself a win over the weekend. Boy, you know the, the Shriners. I want to go to it because my friend is a member of the club there, and it just falls in the middle of football season. Everything going crazy, and they had a really good. They had they had a good uh, field. They had Brooks Kepta, Hideki Matsu, Osami uh, from who won the Masters, who both finished 67th. Tyler Gooch finished 11th, who was on our show. Matthew Wolf finished second. He was at 20 under, but Sunday a big win at 24 under. Uh, Phil Mickelson won a seniors tournament. I think his third one that he's won. And then, the, of course, what everyone talks about is that Tiger Woods was cited at. At his son Charlie's uh, tournament, was playing, and Tiger was walking, uh, walking around on the tournament. So, which is probably bigger than all the other things we talk about in terms of golf. And hopefully, Tiger is on his way to recovery. Ira, taking, we know you're doing a lot of baseball this week. Um, what about uh, any football next weekend? No football. We'll we'll see what how the baseball works in terms of what how we, with the blow. We just have to let's see how the baseball runs out in terms of whether we should go to football next weekend. But it's weird because then the Steelers Penn State's off next week with a bye. But I'm excited tonight. Uh, Dodgers Dodger Stadium, a great atmosphere of the playoffs. The tomorrow again against the Giants. Um, this is going to be great. I I'm, I am really really I, I love going to sports and I love going to big events and this is a humongous event because this people going to talk about this because the rivalry is so great. Not just two teams in the playoffs, but two hated rivals: San Francisco, L.A. Uh, in, in, in like the best of in the three game series. Can't wait for tonight's game and tomorrow night's game. We are out of time. Thank you so much to Andrew Catalan of CBS. He's Ira. I'm Mike. Let's talk next Monday night. Ira on sports.